0: Well, good morning and happy Easter. (coughs) Yeah, wow. Look look around you right here. Isn't this awesome or what? A full house. Let me just enjoy this moment for just a second. Thank you all for being here. And a special shout out to all of you who are watching online. We're glad that you've tuned in with us this morning as well. In fact, we've got a group in Lee County we want to especially give a shout out to who have gathered together to watch this Easter service. So we're glad that you've tuned in with us as well. So welcome to everybody. So the year was 1985, and I was headed north on Highway 1, the Pacific Coast Highway. The sun was setting, and the colorful clouds streaking across the sky were brilliant. I mean, the weather was perfect. The girl sitting next to me in the passenger seat was gorgeous. I mean, my life was good. And my mission that evening was very simple, to wine and dine this woman who in a few months' time would become my fiancée. So no skimping on this day. We were headed to Moon Shadows, a top-notch restaurant that sits on the ocean shore in Malibu, California. And it was sure to be the picturesque date. I was so confident that I was going to just bless her socks off. I was going to blow her away that night. But there was one small problem. Uh, Some of you know this about me. Evidently, I got in the wrong line when God handed out a sense of direction, okay? I'm directionally challenged. And if you know Southern California, you know it shouldn't have taken me two hours to get from North Hollywood to Malibu, right? 30 minutes is more like it. And I know for those of you who have this built-in GPS navigational system in your brain, you might find this funny. But I came to a crossroads, and looking back, it was pretty evident I needed to go south. But instead, I headed north. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, Brian, you're making great time but I was totally clueless about my true condition. I was on my way to San Francisco, people. About 30 miles into it, I got this familiar, sinking, you're a card-carrying idiot feeling that I had gone the wrong way, that I was lost. And about that time, Wendy started asking questions, okay, saying ridiculous things like, maybe we should stop and ask someone for directions. So I had to distract her, and I pointed out how beautiful the ocean shore was, how wonderful it is that we're driving on the Pacific Coast Highway. And that worked for a little while until the sun set. It was pitch black, and we still weren't at the restaurant. Anyhow, to make a long story short, we eventually arrived at Moon Shadows, and she married me anyway, okay? Something about the fact that I have other redeeming qualities. But I have discovered in life that there are different levels of losses. A hey, level 1 is when you're lost and you don't know it. A hey, level 2 is when you figure out you're lost but you're too proud to admit it. And then level 3 is when you actually stop and ask for direction. If you're a woman, you typically go directly to level 3, right? <laughs> if you're a man, well, my question for you this morning is very blunt, very open, very honest. Are you lost? Like not in a physical sense, but in a much deeper sense. See, my guess is some of you listening this morning, you're at level one. You're lost and you don't know it. Others of you have this sick, gnawing feeling in your stomach that you're lost, but maybe you're too proud to admit it. And still others, you know you're lost and you're looking for answers. You're looking for direction. Well, my goal today is to help each of us discover where we are on this whole sphere of lostness. And I want to show you what our loving God has done for us in our lostness, because that's basically what the Easter message is all about. God has not left us in our lostness. He's done something for us. He installed his GPS navigational system into the framework of human history, a sort of spiritual Google Maps. And today, I want to trace God's roadmap for you, a roadmap that leads to a destination that is critical for you and for me. See, God has revealed himself to directionally challenge people in some amazing ways. And as I begin to share this with you, I think it'll become quite obvious. Now, up front, one crucial thing you have to understand is that the concept of lostness is ultimately connected with our need for justice. And that may seem like a bit of a disconnect, but just stick with me here. Lostness and justice are intricately connected. You see, somewhere deep in every human being's soul is the mentality that there has to be consequences for wrongdoing, for immoral behavior, right? If somebody breaks a law, somebody commits a crime, somebody blatantly just goes out and does something that is against the law, something inside of us shouts out, somebody's got to pay. And when jets tore through the World Trade Center towers, somebody's got to pay. When a young child gets kidnapped or brutally murdered, somebody's got to pay. You know, Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. I didn't mean to. Oops, I did it again. It's just who I am. Like Those sorry excuses won't cut it. And this whole somebody's got to pay mentality, it's not just a 21st century thing. Throughout history, every culture, tribe, and people group have devised a system whereby guilty parties pay for wrongdoing. Some pay a fine. Others get thrown in prison. And still others have the death penalty. And this concept of atonement, okay, it runs deep into who we are as human beings. Webster's defines atonement this way, making amends or payment for offenses committed. Atonement is making amends or payment for offenses committed. And this is a uniquely human thing, okay? We don't see it in animals. When my dog sneaks out of the yard, the pit bull next door doesn't say, hey, that dog is broken out, He needs to be punished, That canine needs to go to solitary confinement. Now, it's a human thing. So we got to ask, where does this atonement awareness come from in human beings? Like, how did every tribe and culture come up with a notion that there has to be consequences for wrongdoing? You know, evolutionists have a hard time coming up with a plausible answer for that one. But I would suggest to you that our atonement awareness comes from God. We are made in the image of God. And the concept of atonement is woven into the very fabric of who God is. Now, in the first book of the Bible, we get our first glimpse into God's roadmap of atonement. And it all started when God gave mankind the high-risk gift of freedom of choice. Because along with freedom of choice came the risk of the need for atonement. See, when man chose to disobey God, there had to be a penalty of some kind. In Genesis 2.17, God warned Adam that rebelling against him would lead to death. But Adam and Eve dismissed that directive. They sinned against God, and then they tried to hide. Genesis 3.7 says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, they tried to cover their tracks. That sounds very human, doesn't it? And all of creation sat on the edge of its seat to see what would God do next, right? Like would a lightning bolt come down and fry him right there on the spot? Or, or would God say, Adam, Eve, no worries. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I'll just let sin slide. I'll just wink at wrongdoing. No big deal. No, sin is serious stuff because it's against a God who is a perfect judge. You see, no society could hold together if all the judges in the land said the murderers and rapists, uh, are you sorry? Well, then that's okay. The state forgives you. You, you. you can go. The same thing is true with God and his justice. He can't just let people off the hook any more than judges can just release people everywhere who have committed crimes. So what does God do with Adam and Eve's sin? Well, he makes some shocking statements. Up front, he says, from this day forward, the whole universe is going to be warped as a consequence of your actions. Like the land's not going to be as fertile. Childbearing is going to be difficult. Human relationships are going to be complicated with selfishness and ego. And that's how he goes on to say, and these are tough words, because of your guilt and sinfulness, you will surely die. Like no longer will you live in these perfect bodies in this perfect paradise. Well, the price for sin turned out to be sky high. God said, the price of sin is death and eternal separation from me. But at the end of God's explanation, he then did something that I think took their breath away. This is Genesis 3.21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, some skip right over this verse, and I think they miss the first roadmap clue, the first navigational clue here of an ingenious arrangement that God designed to atone for sins. See, God gave sinners an alternate route to atone for their sins, right here. Because here's God's dilemma. Because God is holy, because God is just, He can't just gloss over sin or suspend the sentence. But at the same time, God is loving, and He's tender, and He cares about these two individuals. And the thought of Adam and Eve and their children having to atone for their sins for all eternity in hell, it moved God to take the responsibility upon himself to provide an alternative to deal with sin. And so, what does God do? Well, He kills an animal right in front of them. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve thought in that moment? I mean, think about this. At that point in time, death was not a part of the equation. They had never heard sounds like that before, never seen unnatural movements like that before. They had never seen blood before. And God, right in front of their faces, skinned the animal, took the skins, and put them on the people, Adam and Eve, to cover their nakedness. As if to say, in order for your sinfulness to be covered, in order for your sin to be atoned for, an innocent third party is going to have to absorb the penalty that was rightfully yours. And this is the first sneak preview of God's intricate plan, His roadmap for the payment of wrongdoing. And it's something that's known as substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It's where an innocent party stands in the place of the guilty party and takes the penalty for their sin, thereby satisfying the demands of justice and allowing that guilty party to go free. You see, this act restores the relationship between God and human beings. If you want a simple way to remember this whole complex word atonement, think of it as three terms at one-ment. Atonement is at one-ment. Through God's sin substitute, we are brought back into a relationship of at-one-ment with God. Now, some of you, maybe you're attending church here, Hill Country, or listening for the first time, and maybe you're just kicking the tires of Christianity. Well, if that's the case, I will tell you this, until you understand this concept of substitution and atonement, you will never understand Christianity. It's what makes Christianity different from all other world religions. It's unique to our faith. God making arrangements for an innocent third party to pay the price for guilty sinners. And what I want to do in the remaining time today is to try to explain this concept to you as best I know how, and then give you an opportunity to apply it to your own sin problem. You see, all throughout this book right here, the Bible, we see snapshot after snapshot after snapshot of substitutionary atonement. For example, if you go to Exodus, God's people had become a faithless people. They were sinning all over the place. They were actually in bondage to the Egyptians who were also sinning all over the place. In short, it was a colossal sinful mess. And God's patience was nearing the breaking point. God is slow to anger, but he does have a limit. And finally, God says, okay, that's it. Judgment is coming. It's atonement time. And he explains that a death angel is going to circulate on a certain night and take the life of every firstborn male in every household. But he adds one caveat. God says, okay, I'm going to provide an alternative to deal with a sin. If you'll find a perfect, unblemished male lamb, kill it, and then sprinkle its blood on your doorposts, okay? If you'll do that, then I will pass over that house. The angel of death will pass over that home and spare your son. That was known as Passover. You've probably heard of Passover before. Now, some people paid attention, and other people just dissed that command. They just blew it off. They didn't think it was that big a deal, didn't think it was actually going to happen. And the people that didn't pay attention lost their firstborn sons. But some did pay attention, and they went out into the herd and found an unblemished male lamb. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Dads, imagine for just a moment that you're one of those individuals, and you go out with your oldest son, say he's 12 years old, okay? And you're looking at the flock there and... Your son watches you pull out a knife and get ready to plunge it into the heart of this lamb. Can you imagine what that little guy would be thinking? What he would say? Like, Dad, what are you doing? I mean, he's my pet. He's the best we have. What are you doing, Dad? And maybe the father turns to his son and says, Son, it's atonement time. It's either your life or the life of this lamb. And those who obeyed the command, those who sprinkled the blood of a lamb over their doorposts, They were spared judgment. And do you see the foreshadowing that's going on right here? Some scholars suggest that that blood was actually spread on the top and sides of the door frames in the sign of a cross. See, this is a sneak preview of substitutionary atonement. The price of sin is high. And we see it played out again and again and again. From Exodus, let's move to another preview, this time in the book of Leviticus. That's a book that's all about the sacrificial system. Whenever a person would sin egregiously, an animal had to be sacrificed. An innocent lamb had to be slain to atone for the sins of that particular person. So tens of thousands of animals were killed in every town and every village. And as the individual walked away from that dying animal, they were reminded that an innocent party had to pay the price that they should have paid. And then once a year, sacrifices were made for the sins of the entire nation. And this was called the Day of Atonement. And just so you know, the Hebrew word atone, it means to cover. It's very important. It means to cover. Old Testament sacrifices did not remove sin. They simply covered sin. And on the Day of Atonement... what would happen is the people would confess their sins as a nation, and then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the temple, to atone for them. In fact, in Leviticus 16, we get a picture of Aaron, the high priest, who has to prepare for hours to go in and meet with God. Well, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were used, and those two goats represented two different ways that God was dealing with Israel's sin. Okay, the first goat was for the forgiveness of their sins. That goat was slaughtered. That goat was slain. The second goat represented the removal of their guilt. It was called the scapegoat. That's where we get our term scapegoat today. And that goat was led out into the wilderness by a guy who obviously was in great shape because he would take him out 12 miles into the wilderness and release that goat. And that was symbolic of God carrying away all the guilt of his people. So I just want you to imagine this in your mind. In every town, in every village, you could hear the shrieking of animals dying. And part of what God was doing was a foreshadowing of something that was coming. All right, let's push the clock forward a couple hundred years. In 800 BC, Isaiah hits the scene, and he starts talking about a future event. Okay, he gives some more clues, some more little hints that are revealed on God's roadmap of atonement. This is Isaiah fifty three five. It says he, and we know now, it's talking about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Well, that must have had people's heads spinning. See, the listeners knew the sacrificial system; they were probably going, "Whoa." It sounds like God's going to send a human being to be the ultimate sin sacrifice. I mean, animals are bad enough. But a man to make the ultimate atonement for the sins of the world? Wow. Let's move further down the road. And now we get to the New Testament. And we see a man who comes on the scene. His name is John the Baptist. And he's preaching out in the desert. He's another prophet. And when Jesus walks up to him, listen to what John says. "Look." the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we've been talking about. This is what we've been pointing towards. This is the final destination on God's roadmap of atonement. This is what the sacrificial system was foreshadowing, Jesus. And then when Jesus started his teaching ministry at 30 years of age, he said this in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in John ten fifteen, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. Wow. After living a sinless life, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, falsely convicted, beaten, and battered. And all of heaven looked on in horror as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, was nailed to a cross. You think Adam and Eve cringed watching that animal die in the garden? You think that little 12 year old Hebrew boy had a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach when he saw his prized lamb get killed by his dad? Now imagine what was going on in heaven when they watched God's son just slowly bleeding to death in front of a group of sinful mocking people. And then, this is big, and then Jesus said, It is finished. Finished. I have made atonement for the sins of the world. I don't know about you, but for me, that price seems too high. You know, guilty sinners like you and me, we don't deserve a sin substitute like this. We ought to atone for our own sins. I and mean, when we pay the price when we break a civil law, we ought to pay the price when we break spiritual laws. I mean, we're the ones who thumbed our noses at God, <laughs> we're the ones who've broken the commandments. So we should pay the price, right? Right. That would be fair. So thank God that life is not fair. Okay. In the words of the Christian band Reliant K, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a substitute for sin, to atone for your sins, to atone for my sins. He took your punishment. He paid the price you were supposed to pay. You see, God in His justice, He He can't just sweep our crimes of wrongdoing under the rug of the universe. Can't do that. They deserve to be punished. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the penalty of sin is death. But People, the death of Jesus pays the penalty in full for our sins. And it brings us back into that relationship of at-one-ment, with God the Father. And then the resurrection of Christ, you know what that does? It assures us of victory over the grave, of eternal life with God in heaven. It secures our home in heaven. And the resurrection is also the reward and vindication of Jesus's achievement, because the fact is, death could not hold Jesus in the grave. And if you're a follower of Christ, death can't hold you in the grave either. Well, the Bible says... (laughs) Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that He paid an all-sufficient price. He paid for our sins once and for all, the Bible says. So now, if you're a believer in Jesus, when He looks at you, He no longer sees your sin. He sees instead the perfect person of Jesus, That's why the most often used phrase for believers in the Bible is people who are in Christ. We are in Christ. What an exchange, right? My guilt for His grace, my sin for His righteousness, my imperfections for His perfections. You know, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament are a preview of God's red road of atonement that finds its fulfillment, in the cross of Jesus. And that road, stained with the blood of Jesus, people, it reaches back all the way to cover all the sins of all God's people before the cross. And it reaches forward to cover all the sins of all God's people after the cross. Now, the Bible says that one day, one day, we're all going to stand before a holy God. And there will be no deal cutting. There'll be no arguing about whether or not you're a sinner. We're all sinners. The issue is how is your sin going to be paid? Who's going to pay for your sin? Because justice will be served, and, and sin demands a payment. We really only have two roads that we can take. One road is to pay for our own sins in a place of eternal regret and remorse, a place the Bible calls hell. Or you can take the second road the red road of atonement. we got to ask ourselves a really sobering question. Whose lifelong record of obedience do you want to rely on when you stand before God? Jesus's or or your own? Our eternal destiny is at stake. I know who I'm banking on. And I want to ask you this. If you knew in a couple of hours that you were going to stand before God, who would pay the price for your sins? Like, is that deal settled? if you haven't made a formal arrangement with Jesus to do that, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, please don't wait. Don't wait. And hear me on this. Contrary to anything you may have heard, it has nothing to do with anything that you will do. All the other religions of the world talk about what you have to do to earn favor with God. Christianity says it's done. Jesus did the work for you. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to clean up your life. None of that. If you'll simply put your faith in Jesus, he'll give you a home in heaven, forgiveness of sins, and a new life. You know, I, and I know right now that for some of you, it's really tempting to switch channels in your brain right now, right? And to say, you know, I don't need to hear this. And it's, it's Easter. Right? I want to go home and, and hunt Easter eggs and eat marshmallow bunnies, right? Okay. That's all great. Let me tell you, the consequences are far too high for you to blow this off. And the choice is in your lap. The choice is yours. You gonna trust in Jesus or not. Remember when I got lost going to Malibu, California? It turns out, if I just looked at a physical paper roadmap, because there were no Google Maps back then, okay? But if I just looked at a roadmap... I would have discovered that the road to my destination was very clearly marked out. In fact, it was marked in red ink. And if I had simply followed that red road, I would have made it to where I needed to be. My question for you today is this, which road do you want? Because there's only one road that leads to the ultimate destination. And the road is red. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm in awe of what you've done for an unworthy sinner like myself to send your son. You did sacrifice your son. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done, that you were willing to go to that cross to pay the price for my sins. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that right now I know that you are stirring in the hearts of people And if you've got a nudge going on inside of you, it could be the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, put your faith in Jesus. So my prayer for everybody in this room, everybody watching online, everybody listening, if you haven't settled that issue, if you don't know for certain that if you were to stand before God that Jesus would pay for your sins, just in the quietness of your heart right now, say, Jesus, I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I believe you paid the price for my sins. I believe you're the one that can guarantee me forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and I'm putting my trust in you. Lord, for all of us who have that relationship with you, I pray that this Easter, we would be in awe of the concept of atonement, how we have been brought back, made at one with you, and that we would be forever grateful. And the incredible price you paid for our sins, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we wrap up the service this morning, what I'd like to do is a little tradition that's been around the Christian church for two thousand years. I'm going to say He is risen, and then I want all of you to respond, "He is risen indeed." We'll do this three times, and then we'll be dismissed. He is risen. He is risen. Indeed. He is risen. He is risen. risen Amen. Have a wonderful Easter.